Thank you, choir. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and open them to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 12. If you're visiting with us, we're in the middle of a series on uh, breaking the chains of life. Christ has come to set us free. Lord, we thank you now for being able to turn our attention to your word and the good news that you have for us, Lord, day in and day out. We thank you, as we sang earlier, Lord, that through you we have victory over life's battles, and we praise you for being a God who fights with us and for us at all times, and Lord, we just praise you for being here with us today, and God, we pray that through this message you would strengthen us in our walk with you, in Jesus' name, amen. Perhaps you've seen the clip that uh, has the title, the caption now, The Saddest Little Boy Ever. It records a a moment that took place well over 10 years ago on the Jenny Jones show, which I don't think is on anymore, and I didn't really watch it when it was on. But on this particular show, a mom had uh, brought her 10-year-old son in with whom she was apparently having some difficulty, and so they used the theme of the boot camp, of sending you like a kid to a boot camp, like uh, for somebody to to scare the life out of them in some ways, to try to straighten them out. And so they used that sort of a template on this show with this little 10-year-old boy and this single mom that had him. And so uh, they had a a guy, a military guy there, a drill sergeant to come in and to try to, uh, uh, you know, use that tactic on this uh, little boy. If you've ever seen this, it uh, was very moving. And uh, basically, you know, the idea is trying to keep him on the straight and narrow. That was the hook for the show. And so we see this little frail boy uh, confronted by the drill sergeant. Right you love her, right? Yes, sir. Now, you're not an adult till you're 18. Do you want me to be your daddy for the next eight years, son? Huh? Yes, sir. You do? <laughs> Why do you want me to be your daddy? I have no daddy. You have no daddy? Well, let me tell you something. Come here, give me a hug. Well, the show did not say where the dad was, but isn't that sad? Here's a little guy that, uh, you want me to be your daddy for the next 10 years? Yes, yes, I do. Why do you want me to be your daddy? I, I don't have a daddy. And we don't know what happened to this kid in the years ahead or the drill sergeant, but the sad thing is, like so many kids in our culture, he didn't have a healthy identity being formed through the people around him. And in a fallen world for him, there was no godly heredity shaping him, and it was beginning to show up in his young life. He was desiring a family, wasn't he? He was desiring somebody to come around him and support him. He was desiring direction and an identity for in his young mind. He knew things were not as they should be in his broken world. It's been noted that, and it states the obvious, that we don't get to pick our relatives. Some of you just thought, thought of some of your relatives, right? And we could add to that that we don't get to pick our ancestors. We don't get to pick where we will be born. We don't get to pick our race, our economic circumstances into which we are born. And sometimes the world will seek to, a lot of times I guess I should say, the world will seek to lock us into circumstances into which we are born. And to mark us becomes our identity. So such as socioeconomically, we have people that are 
marked in the caste system in places like India where it still exerts power. Or in our identity when we were brought into certain families and growing up and we, we blow something and somebody says something to us like, you know, we, the apple didn't fall very far from the what? From the tree. And even in careers, we feel pressure sometimes to choose because, you know, you're never going to amount to anything else. I think of the movie The Rocket Boys with Jake uh, Gyllenhaal where they were in you know, the mountains of West Virginia, and his father worked in the coal mines, and he had a desire that he wanted to be a rocket scientist and love Dr. Werner von Braun. And, and the conflict that was there, even in the school, with the principal telling their teacher, these kids are never going to go to college. They're destined to work in the mines like their fathers. Or sometimes we grow up and we feel that in our religious persuasion. You know, our family is this, or our family is that. Sometimes our family is Baptist or Methodist, or our family's Buddhist or whatever. And we get marked in that way. One of the radical things about Jesus is that when he came walking into the world, he said he came to set people free. And in his life and ministry, he came to turn over the apple cart and how this world and its fallenness arranges and operates. And one key liberating work of Jesus is that we no longer have to be bound or ultimately shaped by our heredity. There is a new order of freedom available to us in Jesus. And that is what I want to talk to you about this morning in a message I've entitled, Breaking Chains, Breaking the Chain of Heredity. And so if you have your Bibles, we're going to read out of Matthew 12, verses 46 through 48, where we find Jesus beginning to come into his own in his ministry. And he's speaking to a group of people. And the Bible says in Matthew 12, 46 through 48, while Jesus was still talking to the crowd, his mother and brothers stood outside wanting to speak to him. You recall later, the Bible tells us his brothers did not believe in him. They didn't believe in him until after the resurrection. So he lived his whole earthly life here with them not believing in him. And in this instance, they've even pulled Mary into the, into the situation. Someone told him, your mother and brothers are standing outside wanting to speak to you. And he replied to them, who is my mother and who are my brothers? And pointing to his disciples, he said, here are my mother and my brothers for whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. In this passage, we find Jesus' influence becoming such that he's increasingly in conflict with the religious authorities, it's becoming more pointed and becoming more public. Here he has been addressing a crowd of people, as the text says, about the kingdom. He deals with a lot of different things back in that passage. And his biological family shows up having come from Nazareth to Capernaum, because they've heard about the commotion that is growing up around Jesus. They think perhaps something is wrong with him. Perhaps they come to remind him of his family responsibilities, that he's the eldest brother and the provider. We don't know exactly what all was in the background of their showing up, but the Bible does say in the parallel passage in the Gospel of Mark, chapter 3, in verse 21, 
Mark adds this about their coming to the town. It says that uh, when his family heard about this, that is what he was doing and teaching and the ministries appointed the twelve, he sent them out. When his family heard about this, they went to take charge of him, for they said he is out of his mind. So here Jesus is reminding them, his earthly family and us, that his kingdom responsibilities supersede earthly bonds. And he certainly committed to the idea of family. You recall later when he's hanging on the cross, he appoints one of the disciples to take care of Mary. And so he was concerned about that. But not even family could cause him, earthly family, could cause him to be diverted from his divine course, his appointed course from God. That superseded everything about his biological family, born of the Virgin Mary without a human earthly father, but certainly an earthly mother. And so what Jesus here is doing and saying when he talks about this new family and he's superseding this earthly family, he's telling us ultimately that he's building a new eternal spiritual family that is built through faith and it is reflected in unwavering obedience to the Father as he is demonstrating in his own life, right? My family are those who are obedient to the Father. And remember Jesus throughout his ministry keeps saying, I only do what I hear my Father telling me to do. What I see the Father doing... I do. So absolute obedience in that particular way. And it is this new family that will ultimately be with us for eternity, with Christ being the head. It is this new family that we are to be a part of that can begin to shape and redefine our identity here as children of God who have been adopted by God. And so making this statement here in chapter 12, verses 49 through 50, Jesus gives us great hope for breaking another chain that often binds people and keeps them from being free, and that is the chain of heredity. So let me talk to you about that this morning, is how does Jesus Christ break the chain of heredity in all of our lives? Well, first of all, we are reminded as we begin to interact with this text and others that we have a Creator who is always acting fatherly toward us. Now, when we come to Jesus' comments here in the Gospel of Matthew, where he says, these are my my mother and my sister and my brothers, these are things uttered in time 2,000 years ago. But you see, long before Jesus ever came and uttered these words, they come after a time in eternity where the plans of God, who is eternal, have been put into action. At this point in Jesus' life, we find the plans of God unfolding here in this new family. But when you think about what Jesus is saying here and where he came from, when we go back before time began, before creation, we find God existing as Father, Son, and Spirit, all equal and one in essence, dwelling in eternal love and having a plan to create everything that exists. And in that plan or his decree to exist, You and I as human beings are going to be the height of that creation, made in the image of God. God's plan was to create in the Trinity, the Father, Son, and Spirit. He chose to create all that would be made. And He created us knowing that humanity would fall into sin. He was not caught by surprise. He created knowing in His foreknowledge that we would all sin 
fall short of the glory of God, rupture our relationship with God. And that to save us was going to be extremely costly. That is, costly to Him. And that the eternal God in the Son took on human flesh in the Incarnation. And the Incarnation continues and that God took human flesh into Himself, took on human flesh in the person of Jesus of Nazareth, born of the Virgin Mary. And then he would walk on this earth, suffer much pain in life, being understood by his earthly family. They see here that they think he's out of his mind. And finally, he would die on a cross bearing the wrath that you and I deserved and that God poured out the wrath upon himself and his son died in our place. But in thinking about this God who chose to create us, knowing the cost that it would take to redeem us, when you read about how he acts in the Bible, his disposition toward us has always been fatherly. As one song puts it, he's a good, good father. Do you know the song? He's a good, good father. And he always acts in that way. Even in our fallenness and the brokenness of the world, God restrains the evil in humanity. It could be so much worse. God does not restrain the evil in the devil and the fallen angels. They're always absolutely evil, absolutely corrupt, absolutely bent on doing evil. But fallen humanity, even in our fallenness, we are not as corrupt as, as the devil because the Lord restrains evil from being as bad as it could be among humanity in His grace. And He acts fatherly toward His creation. And so in that passage we read in the book of Acts this morning, chapter 17, if you could go back there for a moment, where Paul is giving his uh, speech, his sermon on Mars Hill. He's speaking to the philosophers in the city of Athens, Greece. And he's laying out for them the gospel of Jesus Christ. Acts 17, go back to verses 24 through 28. It's Acts 16 on the screen. That's wrong. It's Acts 17. That's my fault. Don't blame the guy. Don't blame Scott up there. Scott didn't do that. I did. So Acts 17, you'll notice he talks about this God. He says, The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples built by human hands. He is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. He's not the receiver. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. From one man he made all the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth. He marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from any one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. And so here, Paul says that this God is one who has acted and he's always fatherly toward his creation. You can think about it in the terms that we find it in Matthew chapter 5, where Jesus tells us how do we to act toward our, our enemies, love uh, our enemies. He says in Matthew 5, 44, I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. Notice he says he causes his Son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. So this God is always fatherly even toward those that hate him. Toward people who want to be his enemies. He causes the rain to fall on their crops just as he does on the crops of the Christian farm. He causes the sun to rise on all of us. He always acts fatherly toward us. And so back in that passage in the book of Acts, Paul is saying that God 
in that speech in Athens is God is not passive toward His creation. The Greeks thought things were kind of left to some fateful arrangement of atoms or that they had to seek to appease the gods. Thus, they had all of these temples and all of the ceremonies. And Paul says, I'm preaching to you about this God about whom you are ignorant. You have this, uh, this shrine to the unknown God. Let me tell you about this unknown God. You're ignorant. And he lays out for them the disposition of this God. He is not some faraway being who couldn't touch matter, or he's not one who just lets fate do things as it comes together, Adam's coming together. No, he oversees everything. You don't serve him. He doesn't need anything from you, but he's actually ministering to you. That's the heart of this God. That's his heart. He acts fatherly toward us. And so he goes on in the text to say that all of this points to what God's wanting to do. In His creation, He says that He's over the rising and the placement and the fall of nations. And all of this plays into God's desire to save us. He, he controls when nations rise, when race, nations fall, the boundaries of the nations, where you and I were to be born. And all of what God is doing is He's orchestrating things so that men might seek after Him. And that's what He's seeking to do. And Paul says he's also made us from one man. And thus there is no room for people thinking one race is superior to any other. The Greeks did, as many others have. But he made us all. And his desires to have a relationship with all of us. And he acts it in a fatherly way to bring all of that about. And God has been planning that from before creation ever began. So if you ever think about what the heart of God is like, the heart of God is fatherly and it's his disposition toward us and it's pointing to something that God is wanting to do so what we can say is this that no matter where you were born no matter who your parents were or are no matter what your race is no matter the side of the tracks that man has set up from which you come no matter how much the background of your earthly family may have been reflected in uh, the brokenness of humanity, you need to be mindful that there's a God who loves you and who has acted fatherly towards you and who orchestrates the rising and the falling of the nations and all that He oversees because He loves you and He desires to have a relationship with you. And so if you have been in painful relationships with family, if people have sinned against you greatly in family, and I, you know, I deal with that through the years here of of women who were molested by their fathers or their brothers or their uncles and it's just been a harrowing thing in their life. Or kids that were abused in families or kids that grew up in families that were wrecked by alcohol and drugs. Many of you sitting out in this audience, you know what I'm talking about. You've been there in your life. If you've been through that, if you have some sense of stigma about your background, remember that this God has acted fatherly towards you and He has come, He has come in Christ Jesus and experienced the pain of this world to deliver us from it. And right in human history, one day 2,000 years ago, His eternal Son, who had taken on human flesh, says, I've come to give you a new and a wonderful and an eternal type of family. Who is my mother and my brother and my sisters? It is those who, what, do the will of my Father. He taught us to pray our, what, our Father. is pointing to this wonderful thing that God is doing. It was not His desire that we suffer in harmful family situations, though that often happens. 
know, sometimes people wonder, well, why does God let people be born into bad situations? Why does he let children be born into poverty-stricken areas like Haiti? Why does God let people be born into religious era? Well, God's plan is that he chose to create. And he chooses for us to have life. And he chooses to do that in a biological way. And so as the human race grows, even in its fallenness, God, God's will is that we live. And so we are born. And the means of bringing that about in a fallen world is that we're born into fallen families. All of us are. Some families are more twisted by sin than others. Some more disadvantaged in earthly terms than others. But never doubt that his heart toward you is fatherly for he desires for you to have an eternal relationship with you and to set you in a brand new eternal spiritual family. He's given you life and now he wants to give you eternal life. And he's acted in a way to show you that he loves you so that you might reach out and find him. Even though, as Paul says, he is not far from any of us. So then secondly, as we think about this God who's acted fatherly toward us, that's always his heart. People mischaracterize the heart of God. But always think of God as a good, good father. That's what he is. That is his heart. That is his disposition. Even if after we've sinned and we are under his wrath, judicially, legally, his heart toward us is still that he loves us. You remember when Jesus had that rich young man come to him and he said, what must I do to have eternal life? And Jesus says, ticks off these things. And the young man says, I've done all that. And then Jesus says, go sell everything that you have, give it to the poor and come follow me. And the Bible says that he walked away because he was very rich. You remember that? Have you ever noticed in the gospel, the Bible says, Jesus looked at him and loved him as he walked away. He was walking away under the wrath of God. But Jesus loved him. That's the heart of of God toward us. He loves us. And so secondly, growing out of that and what he has done, not only is he fatherly toward us, he desires to be our father in reality. That's certainly included in what Jesus says here. And in saying that, Jesus is telling us that we don't have to be marked by this heredity of fallenness. We don't have to be bound by it. But that we can choose a different life and destiny. God is building a new family. That's what Jesus is saying. And so to those who might say, well, the apple does not fall far from the tree, and perhaps somebody said that to you along the way, the Word of God says that through Jesus Christ, you and I are being grafted into a new family tree. You remember that? In the book of Romans chapter 11, Paul is talking about the Gentiles as opposed to the Jews who had been God's chosen people through whom the Savior was going to come. And in Romans chapter 11, in verse uh, 17, Paul talks about that uh, the uh, branches, that is some of the branches have been broken off, that is of the Jews, and you, though a wild olive shoot, have been grafted in among the others and now share in the nourishing sap from the olive root. Christ becomes that root. Jesus is the one who gives us life and we're grafted into that new family line in the gospel of, of Jesus Christ. Another way the Bible metaphorically talks about that is God adopting us into his family. And so I want to say to you this morning that no matter where you began, no matter what you're feeling right now in your life about your background, things you may feel that bind you, things that, you know, your background marked you, you made certain decisions growing out of that, nobody taught you, nobody shepherded you like this little boy that you saw on the screen. God 
is one who let you live and he's been acting fatherly towards you and he has come in his son to suffer and die for you and to rise again so that he can put you in a brand new family and give you a brand new start, graft you into the tree, adopt you into his, into his, into his family and give you a brand new identity as you go forward and a destiny. So no matter where you began or where you are right now in Christ, you can go in a whole new direction. You can receive eternal life and be adopted. And you can experience God as your father in a real way. And in that, he becomes your provider and your protector and the one who will transform all of your life. So perhaps you came from a family of a lot of moral brokenness. A lot of moral brokenness in my extended family. And cycles of sin, of things that visit from one generation to the next. And alcoholism or drug addiction or abandonment. And that's marked you in your life. And you're fearful that you're going to just repeat that same pattern in your life. Perhaps you've gone down that pathway somewhat. I want to say to you this morning, the good news is you don't have to be marked by that. You can have a new family, a new father, and a new destiny. It really doesn't matter what that background was. Johnny Hunt pastors a very large 11,000 member Southern Baptist Church the outskirts of Atlanta called Woodstock Baptist Church. He's preached in this pulpit several years ago when we held a conference here. You know, Johnny Hunt was uh, born in North Carolina in his testimony. His background is Native American. His uh, tribe was the largest east of the Mississippi River, the ninth largest tribe in the United States, the Lumbee people. Ancestors were mainly uh, Cheryl and related uh, Shawan-speaking Indians and eventually took their name from the Lumbee River. He was born in Lumberton, North Carolina, county seat, July 17, 1952. Shortly after that, they moved to the city of Willington. And at the tender age of seven, Johnny Hunt's father left. He left his mom, left, him, left her behind with six hungry kids. She was working at a factory by day and by night, and as a waitress at a grill, her name was Bessie Mae Hunt, and he said she met herself coming and going, trying to take care of those children. No dad, Indian background, a lot of things marking him in his life. He said without a lot of adult supervision, he said, I soon turned to alcohol before becoming a teenager. At the age of 16, he quit public school, pursuing a new kind of English and other tricks of the... Uh, the uh, trade as a professional pool player, like Minnesota Fats. If you remember that, he was going to be a pool shark. So he's in the pool hall. Before long, he was managing a pool room, but he had a lifestyle of drinking and gambling and miscues with the law. It just seemed the devil called the shots in his life. 1970, he met a girl and they fell in love. And they got married here in South Carolina. They eloped. She was 17. He was 18, very mature. He said, my old habits and haunts didn't change, and therefore, he said, my marriage got in trouble very quickly. But he said, I got a part-time job at a hardware store, and he met a Christian man there by the name of J.W. Prigdon. And on a weekly basis in the store, he would mention that some of Johnny's old uh, Old uh, friends' lives have been changed by Jesus, and Johnny would brush that off, but the man kept witnessing to him. And finally, in 1972, Johnny and Janet started attending Longleaf Baptist Church, and he was convicted 
And he said, pulled by the Holy Spirit and pushed by the prayers of a Christian wife and friends, he responded to the gospel during a snowy evening church service, January 7th, 1973. And he told the preacher, I want to give my heart and my life to Jesus. And Johnny Hunt's life was changed. His destiny was changed. He had a new family, a new identity. And he has a wonderful testimony of how God worked in his life, this high school dropout kid, to save him, how the Christians came around him and supported him and paid for him to go to college. And he went on to be the president of our denomination and pastors one of the largest, strongest churches in the Southeast. And so I don't care if your background was something like his. You don't have to be bound by that. Jesus Christ has come to set you free and to put you in a new family with a new identity and give you a new destiny. Or perhaps you were born in a background of religious era. You know, there's a lot of religious era. Wrong teaching. That's what Paul is saying here in the book of Acts, is it not? He said, you got uh, idols to these gods all over your city, temples everywhere. He said, but you're worshiping in ignorance. And you're bound by that. But I've come to tell you that there is a God, one God, who's been looking out for you. And he sent his son to die for you. That in him, the one who would judge everybody someday, the Lord Jesus Christ, you can have eternal life. And maybe you've been brought up in a tradition where you think, you know, I, I need to work for my salvation. I need to do this. I need to do that. Somebody might have put a bunch of religious rules on you in your life. Some laws that you've got to follow. Some of you live with an identity that, you know, if, if your hair is this long, you, you feel guilty. If your pants are this long, you feel guilty. Or if you see this particular thing, you feel guilty. It's nothing the Bible condemns, but your background has marked you. Or you may come from very traditions that are very far removed from Christianity. But all of them outside of Christ, in one way or another, tell you that you must earn your way to heaven. You must work your way into eternal life. But I want you to know that God can set you free. He can give you a new life. He can give you salvation as a gift. Right here on this day, He can set you free. No matter how deeply that has been ingrained in you, but you're going to have to be open to hearing the gospel. The salvation is a gift that must be received by faith in your life. Two of my favorite writers, and they're very much up in years. Of One of them may have passed away on Mormonism, and the reason I like them on Mormonism, when I used to teach classes on witnessing to people in cults and world religions, I drew a lot upon their material, sometimes videos that they had done, her written books on Mormonism, Gerald and Sandra Tanner, and their ministry is called Utah Lighthouse Mission. The Mormon church does not like Sandra Tanner. Sandra Tanner in her testimony, shares about her life that, um, that she was born and raised in the Mormon church and she was the great, 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 or the great, great grandchild of Brigham Young. And Brigham Young was one of the prophets along with Joseph Smith who led the Mormon movement to Utah. Brigham Young University, BYU. They have a football team, right? I always love it when they get beat. <laughs> I don't like them. I'm just joking. I, well, I really don't like them, but nevertheless. <laughs> I 
But Sandra Tanner says, you know, she had strong ties in that faith until she was 17 before she ever attended another church. And everything in her life centered around that. But she began to have some doubts about her church, such as could it be the only true church? Was polygamy really right? Why couldn't the the black person hold the priesthood? Was temple marriage really so important? Why were its rights kept in such secrecy? Did God actually command Mormons to wear special undergarments? She had a lot of questions. Finally, she went to college. She still had a lot of questions in her life. Long story short, she eventually met Gerald, who would become her husband. And through the study of God's Word, she said, as she studied, I found not only errors in Mormonism, I also began to comprehend there was something wrong in my own life. As I studied God's Word, I realized I was a sinful hypocrite. In spite of my sins, I thought I was right with God, yet the Bible says, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. She said, after Gerald and I were married, we started visiting different Protestant churches. I listened to the sermons. I began to realize that God was not concerned with people's church affiliations, but with a personal relationship. Christ taught a way of love, not a religious system. He stated, by this shall all men know that you're my disciples, if you have love one to another. Began to understand this God was reaching out to her. And she said, finally, on October the 24th, early one morning, I decided to listen to the radio for a while. I turned to the Christian radio station, listened to a sermon. The minister was preaching on the great love of God and the mercy offered to us through Jesus Christ. And she said, nothing ever struck me with such force. And I opened my heart and gave my life to Jesus. And she was delivered out of the bondage of a system They said, you've got to do all these things. Even going back to her great-great-grandfather, who was a leader, she was set free through the gospel of Jesus. And you can be set free today as well. I'm not concerned that you become a Baptist. I'm convinced that Baptist doctrine is right. We're not the only ones that are right. I believe in a lot of what we do as Baptists. But my concern about you is that you know for certain you have eternal life. Because that's God's concern about you. And it is no accident that you're sitting here today, no more accident than when he raises up the nations and brings down the nations, that he puts you under the hearing of God's word to tell you that this day you can have eternal life, have a new father, a new destiny, and you can be set free. This God has come to liberate you. You can choose a different life and destiny. There was a movie that came out a few years ago called Guess Who. It was based off another old movie called Guess Who. This one, the dynamics were a little bit differently with Bernie Mac and Ashton Kutcher. And Bernie Mac, unfortunately, uh, he died. He had a lung disease. He was a very funny comedian and uh, actor. But in this particular movie, uh, Ashton Kutcher is engaged to his daughter. And so it's an interracial relationship. And they come home to meet the parents on a particular weekend And he's lost his job. Ashton's lost his job because his mentor, he was an investment bank or an investment guy, and he was doing really, really well. But his mentor came to realize he was going to marry this girl, and he said, Don't you marry that black girl. And so he quit his job. He comes home, and these two guys have a rough weekend getting to know each other. Things don't go very well. The uh, relationship with the girl falls on the rocks on the weekend. They part, not on good terms. And so Ashton goes to the uh, train station to catch a train to go back into the city. And he's sitting there on a bench. 
And Bernie Mac realizes while he's getting dressed for his uh, anniversary thing with his wife, he realizes what it hits him that he quit his job and he knows why he quit his job. And so he gets in his car and rushes down to the train station, goes up and finds a young man sitting dejected on the bench. And he said, you missed your train? He said, yeah, I missed it. I may miss the next one. And he's just brokenhearted there. And as he's talking to this young man, he'd come from a broken home. He had a poor, absent father. That is Ashton Kutcher in the movie. And Bernie Mac said to him these lines. He said, son, every man gets to choose his destiny, no matter what his father did. You know, that's true for all of us. No matter who your father was, your grandfather was, your grandmother was, no matter what the moral suasion of your family, the religious persuasion of your family, God Almighty in Christ Jesus in His own blood has come to set you free and to give you new and eternal life and a new and eternal family. What great news. And then finally, let me share with you that we can then seek to build a legacy in time. You not only can begin a new relationship You can seek to build a new legacy in time. That is, you can be the first in a stream of people seeking to build life in the right way. You may be sitting here today, and you can't think of anybody else really in your family that's a believer in Jesus or committed or understands the gospel. You can't think of anybody else much in your family whose life is not a wreck or they're in some spiritual era. And God's speaking to your heart today, and He's saying, you know, I want to begin with you. You can be the first in a line of being in my family, and as you grow up with your family and your friends around you, you can build a legacy, a new destiny in this world right now as you follow after me. You know, I've shared with you in the past that when my dad and mom were converted in the late 1950s, Before I was born, they had three children already. They really marked a first in a long line, in a long time, in our family of being truly serious disciples. And my great-great-grandfather had been a Methodist preacher, and that's how the Cox side of my family got out of Georgia into Alabama. That's salvation in itself. But... (laughs) But then after that, there was no real deep commitment on either side of the family. I mean, they went to church, some of them did sometimes, but just not much really there. My extended family then, they were not comprised of atheists, but you would not describe most of them as being Christians in any real meaningful way. And my name often got mixed with some of the rest of my family. And on more than one occasion... I found myself marked by that, and people prejudiced against me simply because of my last name. It happened to me in the first grade. It happened to me in the ninth grade when I got in a fight with a bully at homeroom. He'd been bullying me for a good while, and I did not turn the other cheek again. had to ask God to forgive me of that, and tore the room all up, hit my teacher in the face accidentally. She stood in the way to say stop, and I was already swinging. Her husband is a Southern Baptist pastor, by the way. Uh, no. I talked to them not long ago. They think that's the funniest thing in the world now. That uh, I hit her in the face. But anyway, I found myself before the principal. I'd never been in the principal's office. The guy with me, his name was Daryl. Rough background. Daryl went on in life to um, 
Last time I ever saw Daryl, I cashed a check for him, and I was managed in a grocery store. And a few weeks later after that, I heard he'd, he'd been stabbed to death. Well, a few couple of years after that, he was breaking into somebody's house, and he and the guy were dividing the spoils. They got in a fight, and the guy stabbed Daryl, and he died. He was always in trouble. I'd really never been in trouble, but I was sitting there in the office. Mr. Higgins was the principal, and he asked me my name, and I said, it's Don Cox. He said, Cox. He said, you can to so-and-so? Yes, sir. You're out of here five days because that person was in trouble all the time. And I remember my dad coming the next day to meet with the principal. He gave me five days. And my dad met with him. My dad said, look, I'm not my family. I'm a Christian. This is not who we are. My son was in self-defense. My dad went to bat for me. Rightly so. But that just told me a lot about how the world will mark you. Right? It will mark you. But my dad had met Jesus and he was building a family in a different way. My son sitting here today and we were talking at the house a few weeks ago with some of my family. that were about my family and my children got really tickled because I couldn't remember the story about one of my relatives who uh, he and his, one of his best friends, they were drunk one night and uh, one of them assumed or suspected the other one was fooling around with his wife, and so he shot him. And, uh, and I couldn't remember if my relative shot him or his friend shot him, and they thought it was really funny that I couldn't remember if uh, so-and-so shot someone or shot the other one, but I know somebody got shot. <laughs> I'm just saying, that's a lot of what my extended family was like. Some went to prison for being fences, that is, buying and receiving and selling stolen property. That's extended family. But my mom and my dad met Jesus. And they began to build a different type of a legacy. And praise God, we've seen, you know, many in our family through the years have become followers of Jesus. But you don't have to be bound by those things. And my dad was the first in the line. And I want to follow in that legacy. My desire is to see my children. And if God gives me life, my grandchildren follow in that legacy of a family dedicated to Jesus Christ, His kingdom, His church, because He has given us life and liberty, and He's adopted us, and He's doing something great in and through our lives now. And that can happen for anybody. I don't have time to read it to you, but I was going to, but it's a long story, not read it to you, but tell you the story. But when you get home today, turn in your Bibles and read Second Chronicles 34, verse 1, and you'll come up to the story of a young man named Josiah the king. He's known as Good King Josiah. I named my youngest son Josiah. And he's known as Good King Josiah because his father and his grandfather were rogues. They were the kings of Judah. They were known as wicked men. They were on the throne for over 50 years, leading the nation in idolatry. Josiah comes to the throne at 8. He really assumes power when he's 16 and at 16, he begins to call the nation back to God, to tear down the altars that his father and his grandfather had built. They rediscover the Bible that had been lost. Somebody found a copy of it, and he calls the nation together, and they read the Bible together. And he seeks to bring reform to the whole land. He was the first, right, of a new start in a new generation to build a different kind of a family and a nation on the planet. Maybe today you're here and you need to give your life to Jesus. You need to call upon Him to be your Savior and your Lord. 
Maybe you're here today and you're a Christian and God has blessed you and you, you had a wonderful family that's taught you and led you and loved you, but you, you're not living up to what you need to be doing with the legacy God has given unto you. And maybe today is a day when you reconsecrate your life to say, Jesus Christ, you have been fatherly toward us. You have saved me. You've saved my family. And I want to build upon what you've given to me in my generation. And maybe today you want to take a fresh stand for Christ. Maybe today... Christ is leading you to follow him in baptism or in a membership with this church. Whatever he may lead you to do, we invite you to come as we sing today, Have Thine Own Way, Lord. Would you stand with me as we sing? Father, thank you for, Lord, this uh, word, and thank you for setting us free, Lord, from heredity, that at the foot of the cross there is neither Jew nor Greek, male nor female, slave nor free, for we're all one, that one new family in Jesus Christ. We praise you for that through your Son. Amen.